Submission. We don't like this word. It seems to indicate servitude, slavery, or an individual of lesser importance. The text this week illustrates God's commanded order for the two partners in marriage and, likewise, for the church under Christ. Notice, however, that more than twice the space is devoted to the responsibility of the husband to sacrificially love his wife. We have this incredible knack for being dense, so God finds it necessary to repeat his instructions for our understanding. Like the God-ordained marriage relationship, being a model of the relationship of Christ to his bride, the church. The book of Ephesians was written to true believers, so these teachings only apply to Christian marriage and hence to the true Christian church. Are you a true Christian? Like the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, to professing Christians, test yourself to see if you are in the faith. If you fail this test, you have a need that must be addressed first before you proceed with this study. Contact our office. We can direct you to scriptures that can change your life. If you're ready, let's jump into the study. Hello, and welcome to God's Word for You for today from Liberty Lake Church. This is part 25 in the series called Ephesians, God's Cosmic Plan, King Jesus, His Church, and You. So take out your Bible and turn to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, and follow along with Pastor Neil Anderson from His Place Church in Post Falls, Idaho, as he explores the responsibilities of husband and wife in comparison with the church in the session titled, Christ-Centered Marriage. Good morning. My name is Neil. This is my wife, Carol, and we're happy to be here. We praise God. <clears throat> if you have a Bible, before we get to the text this morning, I am, uh, and I'm glad somebody read a verse, which was a very good verse, I'd like to ask you uh, to turn to Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55 is an, a little unusual in the book of Isaiah because one of the few places where it is God is speaking in first person. And it's especially appropriate to where we're heading today in the book of Ephesians. I won't ask you to stand at this time. I'll just read this. Uh, because as you probably know from the passage that uh, it's about submission and authority. And these are not subjects with which our present culture has been generously endowed with favor toward. So this is a very important few verses from the book of Isaiah, and God is speaking. So Isaiah chapter 55, verse 1. Hear the word of God. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food which is, and your soul will delight in the richest affair. Incline your ear and come 
to me. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel. For he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. And call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. And the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. That he may have compassion on him. Unto our God. For he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways. Declares the Lord. For as the heavens are are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and snow come down from heaven, do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy, and be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord. This shall be for the Lord's renown. An everlasting sign. That shall not be cut off. Amen. Does this device go higher? That would be good because. Does this work like this? Oh good. Because I'm getting blind in my old age. Yes. Please turn to the passage before us. Which is Ephesians chapter 5. The text today actually begins in verse 21, but I'm going to start reading back at verse 15 to put in the context what God, the Holy Spirit, is speaking to us through Paul, his apostle, his messenger. So if you are able, and if you so desire, please stand for the reading of God's word. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning with verse 15. Hear the word of God. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. 
Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her. That means make her holy. Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and shall hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. This is a, uh, this is kind of a gem in the book of uh, Ephesians. As you probably were made aware in the first chapter, there's sort of a main thrust of the book of Ephesians is laid out right there in verse 9 of chapter 1. You don't need to turn to it. I'll read it. It says, He's lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him. Things in heaven and things on earth. <clears throat> so this book of Ephesians is, of course, about Christ and his church. It focuses Christ as the main hero and champion of all this that God is doing for, for mankind. And it tells very clearly to us that uh, God's great uh, blessings and all these things blessings are to the praise of his glorious grace and grace the theme of grace runs through this book in many different places as you all know Ephesians 2 8 9 for by grace are you saved through faith not of yourselves it is the gift of God not of works lest any man should boast and the proper understanding of this bit that we've read is in that context and there's some pieces that I'm going to try to bring out. And I'm very convinced that I would be foolish to try to expound or teach every possible thing that could come out of these 12 verses. I'm not going to do that. I'm only going to say that this showcases the person of Christ. And it showcases that he has established his church a certain way, provides order, and submission to authority within the church. In other words, we know from the Bible that God has ordained and established order in the family. Right here we have this. 
in the church, in the government, all kinds of ways. Even here, slaves and masters, there's the idea of authority. And I don't have to tell you that uh, people get this all twisted and convoluted and they don't like the word submission. Is, am I correct in that? But we who love God realize this bit here in this letter was written to believers. Believers who are blood-bought. We're not our own. We've been bought with a price. And we're told to therefore glorify God in your body. And we belong to him. This instruction is not really given to the world. What is described here is Christian marriage. A, a Christian man marrying a Christian woman. Other concerns when that's not the case are, are tr treated elsewhere in the Bible, but this is the one here. And um, I would say that pretty universally, mankind doesn't like to submit to authority. Am I correct on that? How many of you discovered that even in your own heart? The lead-in verse is actually verse 21. It says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. The word reverence is a good word in English. The word in Greek has many different senses, but the word is phobos, which means fear. That there's something about Christ in this whole deal that we should realize his authority, his power, besides his goodness and grace, but it does say here, we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. There is a lot of teaching afoot that would deviate from the plain sense of what is here. This is not saying, oh, it says here, wives submit to your own husbands. What it says submitting to one another, that means husbands should submit to the wives. That's what that means. No, it does not. It does not mean that. Just as it, nowhere in the Bible does it say that, for one thing. And nowhere in the Bible does it say that Christ submits to the church. Like one another, see, reciprocal. This is a statement of fact. It's not an opinion. This is not a command. It's just simply stating a fact. The husband is the head of the wife. The wives be submissive. Be subject to your husbands. That means that he is describing in Christian marriage an order. A hierarchical order where one is in the position of over the head, the leader, and one who is more the follower under the lead of the head. Now you notice here that just this so far in the first three verses, it doesn't say how this works out. We're left all this freedom. And nowhere in this passage is our wives coerced to do something. It just is stating the way it's supposed to be. Nowhere in here are, are we told that husbands are supposed to enforce their headship over their wives. No. Because of the way the language unfolds in the original language, it is very clear that a wife who submits herself to her husband, that submission has to be freely, willfully, 
offered to you. Upon reading this and understanding this. And then there's a, a corresponding teaching to the husband. Now, you see, this is a kind of, inter kind of confusing picture here, Neil, because are we talking about husbands and wives here? Are we talking about Christ and the church? Yes. Yes and yes. <laughs> right? So stay with me. There are three and a half verses in these 12 verses that are directed to wives. There are eight and a half verses in this section directed to husbands. Husbands. Why is that? Maybe it's because we're more ornery naturally. I don't know. But I'm going to just look at it this way. Wives, submit to your own husbands. What's the next phrase? Do you forget? Wives, submit to your own husbands, period. What does it say? As to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit in everything to their husbands. This phrase is really important. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. In other words, a Christian wife in a Christian marriage her submission, willfully and gladly given to her husband, is a reflection of her allegiance and devotion to her Lord. Is that clear? Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Because the husband is the head of the wife. Now this is really presented as if it were up for debate. Nobody's voting on this. It's simply stating a fact. The fact is, the husband is the head of the wife. I want, to, there are a lot of great scriptures here that also throw light on this. And if you have a problem understanding what something means in the Bible, one of the best pieces of advice that you can have is that many things in the Bible depend upon reference to things found elsewhere in the text for their full and complete understanding. Here, there are many places in Bible where it says, wives be subject to your husbands. But it is traced back to creation itself. Now, I'm going to just uh, put, keep your finger in here. You don't have to turn here. But in uh, Genesis chapter 2, there's a very important piece of information, 2.24 is the one that's quoted in here by the Apostle Paul. The Lord God, this is the time God has created man and woman. He made them male and female, it says here, in his own image, in the image of God. Then the Lord God <clears throat> took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you, will, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I would amen that, by the way. I will make him a helper fit for him. 
Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of the ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that, that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. In other words, her bones were made out of his bones, and her flesh was made out of his flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, and here's the verse, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, and shall hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and were not ashamed. This, of course, all happened before the fall in the third chapter, right? See, well, that's pretty interesting. Where is this headed? Okay, where this is headed is in the latter part of this section. This section of 12 verses kind of has three parts. The order, and then some instructions about uh, how this uh, role that he's assigning to the husband and to the wife is carried out in his body, the church. And then the latter part of where we look here is something quite amazing. And you might say, what, what's it about? What's that, what is it? You know, well, you're going to have to be patient. Because where is all this marriage thing heading? What does it point to? And this is the platinum gold nugget for all of us. So, now it says, Christ is the head of the church, his body. It also says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which I will read, which is very important because it quotes this very thing. In the third verse of chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, you have this. But I want you to understand, this is Paul speaking, I want you, he's talking to people in Corinth, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. That means every man is to be in subjection to Christ. Amen? The head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. Does that sound like an ordered array of people, one under the other? It is. It is, even in the Trinity. God the Father the son always says, I, I am subject to my father. I only do exactly what he tells me to do. I say precisely what he tells me to say. He defers. The Holy Spirit. He is not the big shot. He says, I'm here to glorify Christ and the Father. So there is an ordered, functional hierarchy within the Trinity. Although they are co-equal, co-eternal, co-glorious, they are still ordered in such a way that should give us all hope that actually marriage can work that way or the church can work that way. Even though our culture 
hates the notion that anybody should be subject to anybody else, that there is such a thing as authority. The Bible doesn't apologize for this because it has been set in place by God. By God himself. Paul didn't come up with this. God did. All right. I will not read all of that, even though it's a good section. just want to get back to that this is what we see here. That God says the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. And then there's a comma. Christ is the head of the church, comma. What's after that? Really important. His body. His body, because this comes back around on the horn, so we kind of stay awake here. You see, Neil, do you ever have trouble submitting to authority? Yes, I do. When Carol and I were over at the University of Washington, and we were making application to Wycliffe Bible Translators, and you know, what we knew about missions is about this big. But anyway, we were there, and they had a committee of people there that came, and one by one, the people who were kind of applying for membership were had been asked to fill out all these papers and give all these reference whatever place you've ever worked, your pastor, your friends, your enemies, everybody, to tell the dirty truth about you. They had a big file on me. Carol had a file too, but hers is a lot better than mine. Anyway, so they they said, yes, yes. They said, well, you know, you're 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 kind of accepted as candidates. But on the upper left-hand corner of our acceptance piece of paper, or three, there was a paper clip with a little note. And I remember this very well. It says, Neil shall be counseled regarding a tendency to substitute his own program for that of the organization. And he shows a lack of consideration for others. Now, but I see, I was trying to be very humble at this point. And, uh, but you know, there was smoke coming out of my ears. And uh, I didn't, I didn't, I was emotionally, you know, knocked off my pins here a bit. And that was the last day of school. And we were going to go pack up everything, our little car, and drive from Seattle all the way back to Spokane. And, you know, we were kind of going along, and Carol and I were talking about this. And this is where God's gift to men as as often their wives correct because when we're not doing so well our wives know us better sometimes than we know ourselves and my dear wife as we're going along she says love what you know there, there just might possibly be a tiny little bit of truth in that She was correct. Does God like it when we submit to authority? Particularly God-ordained authority. He does. Do we often kick against the goads? Remember what Jesus said to Saul of Tarsus on the way on the road to Damascus. He blinds him. He's down on the ground. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul says, uh, Saul. He asks a really intelligent question. He says, Lord, uh, who are you? 
I am Jesus that you are persecuting. Now get up, go into Damascus, and you'll be told what to do. But before he said that, he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. We'll only find out this is the third time this story is recounted in the book of Acts. He says, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. What's that mean? That means that Christ, God, wanted Paul to go this way, Saul to go this way, and Saul was going this way. And God was kind of poking, trying to get him. You know, a goad is a stick usually with a metal point on it for causing a bullock or, or an animal to go where you want them to go because sometimes the animal has a different idea. So you poke him. God is saying, I've been trying to poke you off of this path and get you going in the right direction. And you know what? You are only hurting yourself. An animal that kicks against the goad gets a bigger hole in the back of its leg. You know that? If it feels the goad now, okay, yeah, yeah, right, this way, it's one thing. But if it kicks back, it just damages himself. And this is a testimony of all humankind. Fundamentally, the most important issue is God is God and mankind is answerable to him. He is sovereign. He has all the authority, all the prerogative to set the rules, to say what pleases him and what glorifies him. Because out of that, what is really healthy for mankind is always doing his will. Amen? And disobedience or disregard of anything he says, by the way, is called sin. Three-letter word. And you can write this down. Sin in the life of a believer is 100% of the time destructive, damaging to the quality of life of that person. No matter how little. Right? Amen? That's what Jesus, you know, we were quoted in there when they were getting ready for the Passover. They said, clean out all the leaven. The New Testament says, clean out all of the leaven. Not, don't leave any of it in. If you leave it, it'll come back. Get rid of it. This is in the Word of God. Well, I think it's marvelous to study that God has designed this. But you see, after the three verses to wives, he balances that very fairly and wonderfully with now eight and a half verses to husbands. Husbands, they go, yes. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor or glory without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Because we're members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, when you read just that much, before we get on to the third point, you would say, oh, man, Christian marriage, this is great, this is glorious, this is imbued. What's so great about this? Well, you'd say, well, actually, huh, he's setting the bar rather high. Would you say that? Husbands, you're supposed to die for your wife if you need to. 
Husbands, love your wife like Christ loved the church. He loved her and He gave Himself sacrificially for her. He cleanses the, Christ cleanses the church and, and cares for her and nurtures her, making sure there's no spot or wrinkle or any of those things which is looking forward to or in the third point. But the, by, the bar is very high. You say, well, boy, this is kind of... Neil, you kind of have the ministry of discouragement here because this is really hard to live up to, right? Nevertheless, that's where the bar is set. So can we just scale this down a little bit? Can we just say, hey, yeah, we can go along with this partly? We have a, a cursed tendency at ourselves to decompartmentalize our lives. Well, when it comes to certain aspects of my marriage, you know, I can go along with it. There are other parts I can't go along with. It. No. As it says, wives be subject to your husbands in everything. There's a 100% amount of uh, value and applicability of this part and in instruction to husbands. Huh? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and he gave himself for her. Whoever saves his life will lose it. Whoever loses life for my sake in the gospel, he's the one that's going to keep it, says Christ. So you say, well, hmm, love your wives. Well, there's a lot about love in the book of Ephesians. And it is not just stated, it's demonstrated right here. It kind of defines love. You know what is amazing to me is that you would say, kind of at first blush, you would say, this passage is about marriage. This is about Christian marriage, wives and husbands. Husband, you're the head. You have that responsibility. I expect you to lead. Yes, I got that. And you're supposed to love your wife. As Christ loves the church. Yes. Wives, you're to submit to your husbands and everything. Correct? But carefully looking at it, which came first? The church or this instruction on Christian marriage? Which is prior Christ's love for the church existed before the beginning of time. Christ has always been working. God has always been working in when Christ became a man. All of these things happened and this is fundamental. What he's doing in Christian marriage is he's comparing that what's going on in, in marriage as sort of illustrative of what exists between God, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, and His blood-bought people. So marriage is compared to something that, that's absolutely amazing. Our marriage is being compared to Christ's love for His church, His care for the church, His self-sacrifice for the church. That's what it's compared to. It's compared to Christ's Salvation. There's a little word in here. It's easy to kind of skip it. Kind of like, bloop, went by too fast. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. You know, I don't know if we really understand the Savior. If it has the, uh, the flavor that it needs 
Because sometimes we have no idea how utterly and totally lost we were. How helpless, completely unable to save ourselves. But this one, this man here, the Lord Jesus Christ, he is the champion. He is its savior. He didn't stay in the safety of heaven. He came down in here where he was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows. And by his stripes, we were healed. He's the Savior. And I would think just logic, if we realize our predicament and hopelessness and desperate hopelessness fully, we would say, you know, submit to Christ, no problem. Love like Christ, no, he is He's amazing. He's great. Amen? Pardon me for saying this. One time, Carol and I were in Papua New Guinea, and we'd been there for a whole term, in like four and a half years or something. And we would have been working on Genesis, but we hadn't even translated one single solitary verse in the New Testament at this point. And, of course, there were believers there, but, you know, they didn't have much to go on. And Carol said to me one day, why don't we translate just one verse, John 3.16, before we leave? They, they hang that up in the church. How many of you know it? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. You'd say, well, how hard can that be? Just simple verse translated into Photoba. For God so loved the world. So we decided to tackle it. Got everybody together in the Bible house. How are we going to translate this word? Loved. I told Carol, you know, I'm having a hard time here. Because the word Hosa Adapo, I ask them all about love, you know, like a guy and a, and a girl. And I found out that word Hosa Adapo is kind of like, it's love, kind of like, kind of love. See? So, you know, I don't really think that's a word here. And, well, what, what about, uh, you know, you really like something really a lot? That's Hengiz Adapo. I think, uh, that's a bit thin. Uh, this, 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 this word here is, is a different word, you know I didn't know what the word was, and I shared this with Carol. We go on, all kinds of things happen. <clears throat> I won't tell you all the stories about this, but there's a lot of stories that, that kind of orbit around us looking for this word, because well, it's a pretty important word, isn't it? So Carol comes back one day, and she's beaming. She'd been talking to the lady next door, who was kind of an uh, interesting gal, sort of a lady, older lady with kids and pigs and everybody all around her. And Carol, and she was telling Carol the history of her, her husband died or got killed in battle or something. And, and, and she was, and Carol tells me, I found the word for love. I said, you did? Yes. What is it? It's Cornell. Cornell. I knew that word. That means hello or goodbye. But also, you know, <clears throat> she said, Carol said, no, 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 no. In this construct, when this woman was telling me she married her first husband because it was an arranged marriage and all that, but the second husband, his wife had died, so she married him out of love. So, I said, well, maybe, you know, Cornell, they also say Cornell when you've hurt yourself. And traveling on the trail, 
lots of sharp rocks, a lot of leeches. And they, if you get cut, all the people pick you back up, wipe all the mud off, and they say, Cornel, Cornelabo, which means we're sorry for you. It's an expression of compassion. So I said, well, maybe she was just feeling sorry for him. She said, no, no, it, this is it. You know, so more things happened, and I realized she's right. God had so much compassion for the world that he sent his only begotten son. Whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Do you realize this bit in these 12 verses in the in Ephesians here is one of the richest bunch of ore in all the book of Ephesians about the gospel. The gospel. What's the gospel? Christ loved the church and gave Himself for her that He might make her His bride. He might provide for her, cleanse her with the washing of water with the Word, which is undoubtedly mostly pointing to the Word of the Gospel. This is Christ and His attitude toward His church that He highly values His church. And collectively, He's bringing all things. God says God is bringing all things together into one, into Christ himself in the ninth verse of the first chapter. So, wow. We found the word for love. We printed it out and they put it up in front of the church and Carol and I came over here, came to this church, many other churches and told people things. And they had only one verse of the New Testament. So they all memorized that verse. We ought to do that sometime, you know. Put that up there and say, hey, how about you memorize this? Okay, yeah. It's really really important that this showcases what Christ has done for his church. You know, I could say a lot, a lot more about that. But then it's kind of strange. It's found a curious jump here. To you, you know, it kind of, I go, you know, we're talking about man, uh, love, man, love your wives. Like Christ loved the church. He loved her and gave himself for her. And then you get to this part where it says, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. And you go, huh? Yeah, that, that doesn't sound quite as stellar, Anil. What's going on here? Something really amazing is going on. Listen very carefully. He who loves his wife loves himself. No, how could that possibly be? She's her and I'm me. She's female, I'm male. Whoever loves his wife loves himself very plainly. It's because when a man and a wife are joined covenant of marriage, they become one flesh. They are joined at the hip. So to love your wife is to love yourself. Amen? We forget that very often. But it gets better. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Imagine the Apostle Paul sit down, set his, his quill down there at that point, and he's thinking, whoa. And he writes, this is a profound mystery. 
the way the Apostle Paul uses mystery in the book of Ephesians is there are things that are outside of the domain of man's just uh, attention and ability to observe that we would never know unless God revealed it to us. This mystery that he's talking about is the mystery of the gospel. It has been revealed before it was not known, but now it is known through Christ and the gospel. And he's saying, this mystery, what mystery? That the two shall become one. Christian marriage is kind of like a little pilot project, a little like prototype of what God is doing. He's bringing all things together into one, into Christ. And that is amazing. Because up in this other part, it says that she, that's referring to the church, that she, plural, that's all of us, the church might be holy and without blemish, that she might that she that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or anything such thing but she might be holding without blemish this is talking about present to himself a wedding day this is talking about the most important wedding imaginable i like to point out when i get asked to marry people the bible starts with a wedding in Genesis chapter 2, God creates a man says, not good for man to be alone, I'll make a woman, a helper suitable for him. She makes the woman, he finds this at last. And then, so who created marriage? God. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. You go to the end of the Bible, Revelation, there's the marriage feast of the Lamb. This is referencing the future. So the third point is to say, where is this all headed? This mystery is profound, but I'm saying it refers to Christ in the church. What refers to Christ in the church? What? Well, this mystery is profound. What's the mystery? That God in his amazing power can bring together a man and a wife to live in glorious union all of their lives. And God and Christ can bring all of his people to live together in harmony. That's the intended outcome. Because you know what? As you roll out the future, and it says he's going to present this body to him as a bride, he is going to bring make us all his very own beloved wife. We are going to be the bride of Christ and we are going to be united as one with him forever. Forever. Is that good? One time we were in the village, this is a long time ago, just before we translated very much, and I had a good friend. As a matter of fact, it was the husband that was married to the man, the woman that was talking to Carol. Their house is right next to our house. And we were at Okarumpa. And this guy got sick with malaria or something, and he died. Now, in Fodiva, culture, everybody completely surrounds them. He's laid into the, against the chest of his loved ones, and they're mourning at the top of our lungs because life is ebbing away. And then he dies, and then, you know, the volume goes up like past 10. They are mourning at the top of their lungs. When all of a sudden he wakes up, he sits up. 
And uh, he says, I have been to the Lord's place. And some quick-thinking photobot said, what was it like? It was, it was really good. It was full of light. And it was like a, like a rainbow laid out horizontally. It wasn't until much later when we translated Revelation, we found out that the throne is encircled with a rainbow. And if you're looking at it from this angle, it kind of looks this way, not this way, right? And, and it's really a good place. So this is really good. Clunk. He falls over and he's dead. <coughs> now they don't know what to do. They're going, uh, do we go on mourning? Sounds like he's... And, uh, well, we're kind of confused. Well, weeks later, we come back to Ukarumpa, back to the village of Ukadabe. And uh, I go down to show my respects to Hadis Ohama, this woman that Carol had told me about. And she said, Notice I am covered with mud. Yes, I see that. But he was a Christian. And he told me, normally when I would die, you would go kill my pigs and cut down all the things in the garden. He said, don't you do that. Don't do that. And you know what? She says, I figure he's better off than we are. I said, yeah, I think you're right. And she elbows this pig that's tied up behind her. That's his pig. I didn't kill the pigs right there. And I thought, wow. She knew and he knew there is a better place. The future is very good for this. And when the Bible says when we get to heaven, there's not going to be marriage. We're not going to be given in marriage or taking wives. No, there'll be some other system because all of us are going to be united to him in a loving relationship that blows everything else that we can ever conceive of right out of the water. Amen. I could go on and on. May I read from, this is a uh, hymnal that we used in college days. Jerry knows all about this. InterVarsity Christian Fellowship has hymnals. And uh, they gave it to college students. Now some of these songs, they don't sing anymore. But I like this one. How many of you know what an hourglass looks like? You know, and you put it on. I used to have go to a counselor when I got back here one time, and, and he had a one-hour hourglass. And I'd walk in, he'd turn it over, and, and when all the sand runs out, you're done. You know. <laughs> Listen up. I'm not a wordsmith like this person. It's written by Ann R. Cousin. The sands of time are sinking. The dawn of heaven breaks, the summer morn I've sighed for, the fair sweet morn awakes. Dark, dark has been the midnight, but day spring is at hand, and glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. The king, there in his beauty without avail is seen. There were a well-spent journey, those seven deaths lay between the Lamb with His fair army doth on Mount Zion stand. And glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. Oh, Christ, He is the fountain, the deep, sweet well of love. The streams on earth I've tasted, more deep I'll drink above. There to an ocean fullness His mercy, mercy doth expand. 
and glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. Oh, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He brings a poor, vile sinner into his house of wine. I stand upon his merit. I know no other stand, not even where glory dwells in Emmanuel's land. The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace. Not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. The lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. Amen. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your precious word, the glorious word of your gospel, your great love and your great mighty deeds in securing for us to be your people bought with your precious blood. Lord, help us to glory in that. Help us to be the kind of husbands and wives and people that recognize that you and you alone are the champion, the one deserving all of the praise and the glory and the credit. Yours is the prerogative, and we gladly submit to your rule in our lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's message from Liberty Lake Church in Liberty Lake, Washington. Our pastor, our elders, and our prayer watch team are available to pray with you or to answer any questions you may have. Contact us through www.LibertyLakeChurch.com or follow us on Facebook. We look forward to hearing from you and welcome any comments you may have. As always, we appreciate your prayer support. Join us next week on God's Word for You for today for another message from Liberty Lake Church. Thank you again, and God bless.